0: Welcome to another episode of In Theory, podcast of the GHI blog. My name is Christian Engelhardt, literary scholar and blog affiliate of the Journal of History of Ideas blog. Here interviewing Professor Edward Tyerman on his recently published book, Internationalist Aesthetics, China and Early Soviet Culture, published by Columbia University Press. Edward Tyerman is an associate professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Taiman explores the cultural and political interconnections between China and the Soviet Union in the early 1920s through a close reading of a wide range of media, including literature, cinema, and theater. In doing so, he provides a very precise insight into the reception of China in early Soviet culture. Taiman traces the overcoming of a synthesized chinoiserie to an authentic portrait of Chinese life a process of cultural convergence spigenye, and he summarizes important mediators such as Sergei Tradyakov who clearly shaped the image of China and Soviet audiences. The intersection of politics and aesthetics plays a significant role here and ta- Professor Taiman demonstrates the reciprocal relationship between historical events and internationalist aesthetics. The internationalist project though historically failed, still holds important intellectual historical lessons for us within its utopian ambitions. And we search for alternative models of the future that could reframe these historical two distinct cultures inhabiting the same historical moment of social transformation and collapse of old orders. for joining <laughs> and um, yeah I really I really uh, enjoyed reading your book just to start with um, I mean Russian and com- comparative literature um, but how what what brought you to research on China and early Soviet culture um, this particular topic um, yeah that would be my first uh, question to you
1: <laughs> yeah no thank you Kristen for the call um, and for the invitation it's a real It's a real pleasure to be able to to be part of this podcast to talk to you today. So in terms of what brought me to this research, um, I should say that I began really as a a Russian scholar. Um, So my undergraduate degree was in Russian and ancient Greek, actually, which isn't part of the book. Um, Then I began learning Chinese in my 20s, actually mainly out of an interest in contemporary and what was happening there, things like the speed of urbanization taking place in China in the 2000s. And it was only when I went to graduate school that I became interested in the connections between Russia and China, and particularly became more aware of the really important impact of, of Russian Soviet culture in 20th century China, um, which is, I think, a fairly well-documented story. So there's quite a lot written about um, the influence of Russian literature on modern Chinese literature, for example, um, which is which is enormous. Um, the translation of Russian literature into Chinese, obviously, the political impact of the Soviet Union on China is, is a massive topic. Um, but the sort of the reverse, the, the Soviet interest in China, was something that I discovered was significantly less explored. My interest in it actually began when I took a seminar on the Chinese writer Lu Shun, uh, probably the prominent preeminent Chinese writer of the 20th century. Um, and for my um, term paper, this was at Columbia University with Lydia Liu, um, I ended up writing about the Soviet writer Boris Pilnyak and his trip to China in uh, 1926, which is something that I discovered essentially completely by accident. I was looking through a volume of Pilnyak, looking for a different text, and I stumbled across this piece he has called Kitaiskaya Chinese story. Um, and started reading it and became quite fascinated by it. And it, te- it talks about his experiences in Shanghai, it also talks about his collaboration with Chinese leftist artists, Tian Han and Zhang Tzu, um, and the kind of the sort of failed quality in some way of this collaboration. So then I went and read their versions of this experience, and there were very interesting ways in which they actually diverged and had quite different ideas of what they were trying to achieve. So I really began with that, and then I started looking around, and I suddenly noticed there were all these other things happening in the twenties in Soviet culture, which were connected to China, um, and that they were spread across different media. So there were, you know, there was travel writing like Pinyaks. There was this huge body of work by Sergei Trishakov, but there were also films like Shanghai Document and The Great Flight. There was this ballet, The Red Poppy, uh, essentially the first Soviet ballet, which was set in China. And people had written separately about some of this stuff, but nobody had really put it all together. Um, and so it was by that process of trying to kind of join the dots and get a sense of why China became such a, an urgent cultural issue at this time. Um, that's what led me to the book.
0: And since you just mentioned Boris Pignac, maybe we can talk a little bit about your first chapter of your book, uh, which is about exploring China through... A- bodily experience also and uh, the role of the traveling writer conveying a new image of China to Soviet public. And uh, you describe these different approaches in which China was received by the authors and also most prominent traveling writers, such as Boris Pilnyak and Sergei Teryakov, who traveled to China in the 1920s. And their narratives differ massively from each other. So Pilnyak's travel experience is more dystopian in nature Whereas Tretiakov is more orientated towards future day and focuses on internationalist mediation, also mediation of a greater knowledge of China. Um, maybe you can tell us more about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So the first the first chapter of the book is about um, Soviet traveling writers uh, who traveled to China and their forms of travel writing and reportage that are getting written around this time. Um, And one of them is Sergei Trichokov, as you mentioned, who in some ways is the central figure in the whole book. Um, And he was an avant-garde writer, theorist, playwright, photographer, very versatile uh, cultural um, worker uh, who spent 18 months in Beijing. uh, 1924 to 1925, he taught at Beijing University, um, taught Russian there. He wrote a huge number of journalistic articles for... Soviet newspapers, Soviet periodicals, Pravda, Prajektor, a wide range of, of publications. Um, and he also wrote a series of sketches that then got put into a collection called Zhonguo. Uh And Tretyakov's vision of China is, is an interesting one because in many ways, he's the person who really theorizes this need for the Soviet public to come to a new understanding of China, which would overcome a sense of China as exotic and other, right? Which is something that, Through Tretukov's lens, he sort of interprets through this Marxist understanding of of commodity fetishism. So for Tretukov, the exoticization of China is really a kind of commodification of China, right? It turns China into either desirable products like silk, tea, various kind of exotic antiques, um, ceramics, and so forth, chinoiserie in all of its incarnations, Um, or it turns China into sort of exotic spectacles, right? Uh, Plays to consume... Um, literature about sort of exotic adventures. Um, he's very scathing about figures like the French writer Pierre Loti, for example, for creating this kind of exotic, consumable image of the, of the Far East. And against that he wants to suggest a, a kind of documentary approach to China that's grounded in the actual contact of um, a reporter, their engagement with Chinese life. Uh, he wasn't just there for a few days, he was there for 18 months, right? He's claiming almost a kind of sort quasi-ethnographic form of prolonged observation where you try to sort of integrate yourself into Chinese society. Um, he relies heavily on his Chinese students to translate sort of um, Chinese language, which he didn't have a very strong grasp of it himself. Um, and this is the sort of knowledge that Tretikov thinks can overcome this kind of exotic commodification, which actually distances um, the Soviet public from China and pre- prevents them from realising that China in the 20s was in a way undergoing a similar kind of revolutionary process to what had happened in the Soviet Union. Uh, that It's a semi-colonial country that is um, still struggling with a form of Western and Japanese increasingly Japanese imperialism um, and economic dominance uh, and in after the fall of the last Qing dynasty in 1912 uh, has a sort of unstable republic which is basically devolving into a form of civil war between rival warlords. Um, So there's a sort of very intense kind of semi-colonial modernity in China at the time, which for Tretiakov displays similar elements to what you could see as as Russia's own belated modernization um, uh, that led to the Russian Revolution of 1917. Um, So on the one hand, Tretiakov is interested in presenting China as existing in the same revolutionary present, but on the other hand, he's also trying to view China through a lens that allows him to sort of read it as in some ways comparable to the Soviet Union and thus destined towards a similar form of revolutionary future. And that's where I think you're right, that this kind of utopian vision of of China's kind of inevitable revolutionary alignment with the USSR is also part of Tretyakov's work. Pilnyak is very different. Pilnyak is is, uh, a very popular writer in the 20s in the Soviet Union. Um, He wrote a very influential uh, novel about the Civil War called The Naked Year, uh, which is a kind of very modernist, fragmented uh, account of the Civil War as this kind of period of violence, but also, in a sense, a kind of expression of the sort of primitive, uh, anarchic national roots of the Russian Revolution, um, which he sees as a kind of intrinsically Russian phenomenon. Um, and Pilniak brings some of those ideas with him when he comes to China. So his view of China, I think, is very intriguing, but it's, it's one that doesn't allow him to project a kind of clear vision of this revolutionary alignment in the future. Instead, he gets very hung up on the idea that China and Russia have some kind of alignment in the past, um, which he links to things like um, both having been invaded by the Mongols, right? A certain notion of a common kind of Eurasian identity. Um, and These ideas of Eurasianism are very, very prominent around this time in various different political figurations. Um, And so for Pilniac, there's this idea of a kind of revolutionary alignment in the past, um, but there's also his own personal sense of a kind of radical um, confusion and disorientation, which he experiences in China, and a sense of kind of sort of anxiety about the alterity of the culture he sees around him. And that kind of confusion between a sort of visceral sensory feeling of difference um, and a kind of intellectual idea of some ancient commonality. Uh, produces, in his case, a text that isn't able to sort of resolve itself into a clear revolutionary future, but instead gets kind of tangled up in these contradictions. Um, And this makes a lot of sense. Klinak is more of a kind of a sort of Silver Age modernist, really, than a a kind of um, revolutionary futurist like Trey But what's interesting about them is that the two texts really deal with the same kinds of um, sort of modes for understanding China. They're both invested in kind of being written by someone who's present, who is a kind of witness, invested in a kind of documentary approach. Um, they're invested in using kind of sight and sound as modes of access. But the the results they come to are, are radically different. So I, in that sense, they both engage in what I think of, what I try to understand as a kind of internationalist aesthetics, that is using sort of different forms of aesthetic and sensory experience to sort of mediate this internationalist relationship between Russia and China. But they do so in ways that actually come to quite quite different political conclusions yeah
0: yeah i think that was uh, also something you, you you contrasted like when you my i like when Plinyak saying i realize that i i do not know i do not understand i will i never will understand china and chinese i ask everyone left and right to find some keys to china and i do not have these keys everything that i see i see in order not you know and this is yeah this is what you already mentioned now also with the soviet lens like it's completely um, different, but let us come back to to Tretiakov, he's like one of the major figures or one of the main mediators, um, you also say in your book, to what extent um, has he contributed to a broader knowledge and like mutual understanding between China and and Russia, like in in comparison maybe Mm -hmm. also to to Kinyak? Mm. Well, that's a great question.
1: so he's somebody that is is part of what usually gets called the left avant-garde in the early Soviet period, right? They a the group that included figures like Mayakovsky, Eisenstein, uh, photographer and artist Alexander Rodchenko, uh, Ziga Vertov. Viktor Shklovsky was a close friend of Tretiakov. Um, he was also close friends with. Um, I mean, this is a little bit later, but he has a very close relationship with Bertolt Brecht. Uh, he's a major influence on Vladimir ideas about the artist as producer and. Um, aspects of this notion of politicizing aesthetics, which is central to Benjamin's work. Um, so he's really a kind of central figure in the interwar avant- sort of leftist avant-garde, um, but he's one that's often been slightly sidelined by these more famous um, sort of colleagues and, and comrades of his. Uh, not least because he was um, he was purged in in 1937. He was arrested and executed uh, on a charge, actually, of spying for Japan, which was closely connected to his. Presence in China. It was claimed through the fact that he'd been in Beijing, and also the fact that his wife, his wife's father lived in Harbin and worked for the railroad there, and was sort of suspected of being a white sympathizer. Um, Techikov was executed for spying for Japan. So this has meant that his legacy has been somewhat, um, somewhat compromised. Uh, actually, in it's pro- he's probably been most sort of researched and centru- placed center stage in German language scholarship on Soviet culture. Uh, In the West, he's actually now having a kind of sort of moment of rediscovery, I would say. But it also means that his work on China got somewhat foreshortened, right? So after 1937, his books are not available in the Soviet Union. They're also not sort of part of this massive transfer of Soviet culture to China, which, you know, taking place already in the 30s, but accelerates after the People's Republic of China is founded in the 40s. But for this period of the 20s, he's really the central figure, I would say, in sort of mediating this relationship between China and the Soviet Union. And if you look at memoirs of that period, uh, it's very clear that, you know, for the generation that grew up in the 20s, this sense of China as the most important sort of site for world revolution um, after the revolutions in Europe failed to happen in the wake of of 1917, um, Is really clear. I've been reading, for example, an account of his journey to Beijing by the film director Sergei Yudkievich from the nineteen early fifties, and he talks extensively about how in his, his youth was filled with this idea of China as the next sort of place where the revolution was going to spread and the site of the kind of concentration of global struggle. And he talks about things like Shanghai docks, um, but he doesn't mention Tretiakov, right? Because Tretiakov had not at that point yet been rehabilitated. Um, but if you look at the sort of range of his writing in in newspapers like Pravda and other journals, for example, uh, or the success of his play Raw China, which was a massively influential play, uh, not only in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, but also performed internationally, right? It was performed yeah. in Western Europe, it was performed in North America, uh, and also extensively in East Asia, including multiple performances in China, and had a big influence on Chinese artists in the 1930s. There's a famous woodblock print by an artist called Li Hua, called Raw China, uh, which explicitly borrows Politicov's phrase. It was also borrowed by Langston Hughes, the African-American poet, who also has a poem called Raw China. So um, he's this figure who I think his sort of central mediating role has some, somewhat been sort of lost from view because of his fate. And one of the things I'm really interested in doing in the book is trying to kind of um, trying to reconstruct uh, that role that he played that has to some extent been been obscured
0: yeah um you you just mentioned *War china and like his this universal character also of like translations and uh like successful reception uh, history let's say uh I also so it has been performed in berlin <laughs> like Brulle china mm-hmm. or china and um, this universal mm-hmm. character of of uh, let's say internationalist aesthetic um, work medium yeah maybe we can we can dive a little bit deeper into like the different chapters because you you kinda in your anal- analysis you 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 have different chapters of like we have the medium theater opera we have the sensory perception we have cinema we have the bio interview mm-hmm. of course um but regarding what China and like it's a, the second chapter about theater and opera um you, you you're you contrasting also raw china and the red poppy um, and this is also something like um, another question would also be like which medium functions best as we huckle for internationalist perspective on china and if we if we take a look on, on what china it's it's definitely the the vision of of uh, the revolution like revolution and self-sacrifice are two two um like main topics also mm-hmm. in in this this um um like in internationalist aesthetics and yeah now <laughs> I already mentioned two questions so like these uh, like regarding the content like the two topics of self-sacrifice and revolution like connecting China and Russia and then on the other side like the medium itself um like which medium performs works best um as a vehicle for these internationalist perspective on China
1: mm-hmm. yeah no those, those are both I think I'll maybe I'll take them in reverse order because I think that they are connected. In ways. So um, with the question of medium, uh, I mean, the way I organize the book, as you've already noted, is um, it's structured by different chapters on different media. And the reason for this is that um, this thing that I call internationalist aesthetics in the book um, it's not so much a kind of set of formal aesthetic rules uh, as a kind of problematic, right? Um, it's a search for a method rather than an established method. Um, and what, I mean to put it simply, I think it's a search for a method, a kind of aesthetic mode that can act, that can mediate the internationalist project, right? Um, so this is at a moment when uh, China is in many ways becoming, as I've already mentioned, the kind of central place, for this sort of Soviet project of world revolution. Um, But it's also at a historical moment in the 20s where there's a sort of extensive cultural struggle essentially going on in the Soviet Union over the question of what the correct forms for a post-revolutionary art should be, right? Um, Should it be largely continuing the realist traditions of of the 19th century? Should it be sort of going into a more radical avant-garde mode that the futurist figures like Treychikov tend to be advocating? Um, should it be based in documentary material? Should it be based on fictional invention? Um, and internationalist aesthetics for me is really the place where these two kind of historical moments meet, right? It's, um, qu- the question of what kind of aesthetic modes should be used to mediate the internationalist relationship, especially with a space like China that has been in various ways exoticized and distanced, right? Um, and so. With Blitikov and also the other figures I consider in the book, I see this as really a kind of, each each chapter is sort of tr- charts, experiments with different media to see how they can best mediate this internationalist relationship, right? Um, with the chapter on the writer, as we've all talked about, though, the question of what role does this kind of writer play as the mediating figure, right? Who on the one hand is claiming a certain kind of epistemological authority, but on the other hand, clearly his authority is limited by his of limited cultural and linguistic knowledge and how does that kind of get played out in these texts Uh, with the chapter on theater um, the interesting question for me is the sort of tension in a theatrical production between absence and presence I suppose you could say when you're dealing with a a theme like internationalism that on the one hand you're trying to stage a performance that is set in this foreign space uh, in order to give your audience some sense of connection to that space. On the other hand, you're dealing with the fact that inevitably what this is, is a a performance by actors of a space which is not actually present on stage, right? Um, And to sort of think through that problem, I draw extensively on the question of translation, partly because both plays actually do very interesting things with translation and with the question of how to deal with the translation of Chinese speech into Russian for a stage performance, for example. Um, or the Chinese translation of certain symbols and signifying names in the case of the red poppy. But also because I argue that in many ways, translation actually tends to be theorized as as structured around this same tension, right? Because it's the tension between uh, the foreign context where the original text originated and the domestic context where the translation operates, right? And a lot of translation theory really deals with this question of, you know, is the translation privileging the domestic context where the translation has to be legible, or is it trying to retain traces of the foreign context where that original text originated to allow the spectator, the reader to realize that it is a translation, right? Um, in a similar way, the stage performance can choose to either kind of smooth over the fact that it is a sort of artificial reconstruction of a foreign reality, or find ways of drawing attention to that fact. And broadly speaking, Tretyakov's play tries to draw attention to the fact that there is this kind of foreign context which the play is only a kind of reconstruction of right it does that partly by bringing authentic objects from china onto the stage so various kind of musical musical instruments and costumes and so forth were imported from china to give this kind of almost ethnographic dynamic to the play um, but it also does that by incorporating elements of chinese language and particularly this particular contact language called chinese Pidgin russian which was used in spaces uh, in northeastern China and the Russian Far East, places like Harbin and Vladivostok, as a kind of trade and contact language between Chinese and Russian speakers. And that pigeon gets used explicitly in the play um, as a sort of stand-in for Chinese pidgin English, because the play is actually about um, a sort of contestation between um, Chinese boatmen and British imperialists in, in Sichuan. Um, but it's, it becomes a kind of the material objects which Tretikov, as it were, sort of imports from China um, as as a sort of trace of a sort of authentic social situation, right? All of that stuff, which is very much part of Tretikov's sort of documentary aesthetic, right? He's interested in trying to find ways of claiming that we're still indexing reality while at the same time acknowledging the very constructed nature of what he's doing. And it's that kind of tension that I find very interesting in Tretikov all of that stuff is not really there in the red poppy. The red poppy is, is a ballet. um, So already is playing with the senses in very different ways, right. Through kind of both musical um, affect and also um, kinesthesis, the kind of, you know, the body's response to the moving body of the actor, um, of the dancer. Uh, But it's also, it's also borrowing much more heavily from a kind of orientalist archive of of ballet as as a tradition so it's it's a it's a ballet about um a soviet ship that comes to a chinese port uh, which is under kind of colonial control it's basically shanghai so it's ruled by sort of evil british businessmen he, there's, a, there's a chinese dancer who falls in love with the soviet naval captain because he helps out uh these chinese workers who are being oppressed by their um by the police uh, and then there's a plot to kill the captain, and she sacrifices her life to save him, and he sails away. So it's this very weird sort of hybrid of trying to do something new with ballet. Ballets are not usually about contemporary political themes, right? At least they weren't up until the 20s. Um, but also reactivate all of these elements from kind of balletic and sort of larger. Um, uh, sort of theatrical tradition. So it's a kind of sort of Madame Butterfly uh, of, of Soviet ballet in some way, right? Uh, and all of these elements that sort are of included in it, this sort of um, death by poisoning, um, there's uh, an opium dream, um, there's sort of symbolic red flower that gets passed around. All of these elements can be traced to various different 19th century orientalist ballets that use these plot devices. So here there's really not an interest in act- the actual foreign context of China as an existing historical reality, right? Um, and I play particularly with the fact that the, um, the, sign- the use of the, the red poppy itself as a kind of symbol in the in the ballet, where it sort of serves as a symbol of international solidarity, shows a remarkable lack of interest in um, the actual context uh, of China, where the red poppy... Uh, Would more readily symbolise opium and the Opium Wars, right? And this is something that was actually picked up on by uh, Chinese communist spectators who protested against the ballet because they saw it as a sort of weird reenactment of 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 imperialism under the guise of internationalism. Um, So that's (laughs) this is a very long-winded way of saying these are very different ways in which the same medium can approach the same question, right? Uh, But at the same time, they both actually have this very similar sort of mythological structures at their base which is this idea of self-sacrifice so in both plays a kind of self-sacrificial moment is the way that the Chinese um, subjects in the play sort of prove their um, their willingness to sort of submit to a Soviet model of revolution essentially um, and that that I think does show that these deeper kind of cultural codes right which I mean self-sacrifice as a kind of revolutionary code in Russian culture has roots going back to the 19th century to the radical, uh, intelligentsia and in the revolutionary tradition, but also obviously is deeply embedded in in sort of Christian notions of self sacrifice um, for for an ultimately higher good and for a redemptive future, um, and the, and they they play in certain ways into a certain Western fetishization, I would say, of the valency of suicide in East Asian cultures. Um, but it is interesting the degree to which even when they are so aesthetically different, um, these these two productions still both do center that's, that same kind of mythological core, right? So um, there are variations on, on a cultural code that are using different different means to, in some ways, reaffirm uh, a similar historical narrative.
0: Yeah. Um, now you're, you've highlighted a lot of, of interesting points. I mean, the first point is um, definitely the translation aspect, like, as you said, for, for China also, that... This effect that Tschernyakov like wants to provoke is that oscillation between like foreign and domestic. There's always this oscillation between foreign and domestic. And uh, regarding the the red poppy, um, now you already talked about the like um the the opium wars, like the connotation of the red poppy, which was a completely like historically seen like completely different negative connotation for China and. Nevertheless, um, they, they used, like, Russia used that uh, on stage, like, as a, like, as you said, it was a transformation of, uh, like, China's dark past into a positive future, um, but what can it be that they, like, kind of ignored it, like, or can we say that, that there was kind of ignorance um, that they used the, the, like, the symbol of the wet puppy, um, like, even though, like, mm-hmm. to to have this narrative of um of a socialist, um, let's say, a socialist revolution. Like, I mean, there was something which really astonished me. Like, How can it be that obvious historical facts, the direct allusion to the opium bars of the 19th century, had been ignored in favor of the uncontrovertible cultural opera, in which affirming the national identity prevails over the internationalist aim of mm-hmm. constructing a socialist internationalist community?
1: No, I agree. It was something that sort of fascinated him for a long time. Confused me really when I was working. With him. Um, there was this, this conflict when, so it happens when Mao Zedong comes to comes to Moscow after the successful taking of power of the Chinese Communists in 1949, and um, he refuses to go to a performance of the Red Pop because his ambassador has told him that it's sort of offensive, and he sends Chen Boda, which is one of his sort of important associates. Uh, to go and, and Chen basically objects to this title saying you know for us the red poppy is a symbi- symbol of opium is a symbol of the opium wars um, which are in the kind of Chinese historiography that this, the Chinese communists uh, sort of put at the center of their claim to legitimacy the opium war is the beginning of what gets called the century of humiliation right that leads to China's debasement it's kind of semi-colonization by foreign powers uh, and in the sort of CCP's account, only in 1949 is that century of humiliation finally ended when the Chinese communists come to power. Um, So for the Soviets to see this as a kind of performance of solidarity when actually it's using these symbols which is associated in China with imperialist oppression, was very confusing, clearly, to a Chinese audience. And I think, you know, as I talk about it in the chapter, I try to understand it as this is a kind of Soviet claim to the power of Soviet art to repurpose symbols, right? So it's the sort of it's the power of Soviet art and Soviet example itself. It's ultimately the power of the revolution to transform the meaning of the red poppy from a symbol of vice and imperial oppression into a symbol of socialism and liberation. Right, and I go into ways in which the different symbology of the poppy in Russian culture allows this in some ways to happen, where there isn't really an association with opium, but rather kind of festive joy uh, and regeneration. Um, but I think there's a there's a kind of wider question at play here, which is central to the book as well, which is, you know, when I, one of my reasons for writing this book um, was an interest in, I suppose, complicating a certain understanding of Soviet internationalism, which would tend to, tend to see it as essentially just a kind of mask or a bad faith ideological performance uh, behind which is actually Soviet imperialism, right? Um, on the one hand, I'm quite keen to demonstrate that in certain ways internationalism quite broadly understood, right, and not always simply understood as the project of the common Turn and it's sort of the 21 points that you had to sign up to to be a member of the common term, um, but understood as a kind of reordering of, of global social relations, right, under a kind of, under a sort of broad revolutionary emancipatory project. Um, I do want to make the case that, that genuinely did, Sort of shape and structure both political action and aesthetic activity at this time, right? And Tretiakov's project in particular is a particularly nuanced and interesting example of an artist responding to the possibility that internationalism could result in some sort of reshaping of how um, human beings in different cultural contexts relate to each other. Uh, at the same time, I think it's undeniable that in various ways, the projects of internationalism directed through the common Turn which was always dominated by the Soviet Union, became subordinated to Soviet uh, state interests, right? Um, And the way I try to sort of negotiate this tension is I think about it in terms um, of what I call centrifugal and centripetal forces, right? Uh, And it's something actually borrowed from Robert Young, his book on post-colonialism, where he sees this actually as the dynamic of the common turn itself. On the one hand, it's a kind of emancipatory project that is trying to overcome this, the eurocentrism of the age of imperialism by creating a newly horizontal dynamic uh, where, for example, sort of Asian and, and Russian communists can uh, collaborate in a sort of anti-imperialist struggle. On the one hand, there's this centripetal force because there is always the kind of gravitational pull of the Soviet Union statehood and its sort of aspirations um, to not only the survival of its statehood, but the projection of its power internationally. Um, what's interesting about the red poppy is that the centripetal kind of dominates overwhelmingly, right? Um, and I think it can be traced to its particular historical moment. So it was staged in 1927, which is the 10th year of the anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And it was, re- it was sort of understood as a performance that was staged for that anniversary, right? Its second performance ever was at the Bolshoi uh, on, I think, November the 8th, 1927, which is the day after the 10th anniversary uh, of October, it's also the year in which the Soviet China policy actually collapses, essentially. So the alliance which the Soviet Union had brokered between Chinese communists and Chinese nationalists falls apart in 1927 when the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek basically turn on the communists. They conduct a massacre in Shanghai of, of communists and workers. They drive the Soviet advisors out of the country. Um, so what the Red Poppy is a very weird production. It's actually taking place at a time when the Soviet policy in China and Soviet influence in China is collapsing. Um, And it's also just before, essentially, the final showdown between Stalin and Trotsky in the left opposition, uh, which is partly motivated by the failure of China policy, which leads by 28 to Stalin being undisputed undisputed leader, Trotsky being ejected from the party, and a major shift towards socialism in one country. Um, So the red poppy kind of it appears at this moment where there is kind of a shift towards a greater emphasis on a kind of patriotic um, sort of great state narrative of, of Soviet internationalism. Um, but it also, I think, shows the ready availability of these kind of deeper, we could call them imperial patriotic cultural codes, right, um, which have their origins in the longer history of the Russian Empire, particularly the late 19th, early 20th centuries, when there is a major... Russian imperial push towards East Asia, right, uh, that culminates ultimately in the Russo-Japanese War um, but ha- leads to all sorts of, sort of ideologies of empire which see Russia's destiny as to become a Pacific power uh, which is basically to historically destined to rule over, over China and East Asia um, people like Esper Uchtomsky, who was a major advisor to Nicholas II, right, uh, project this kind of ideology explicitly, a kind of civilizing mission of Russia and East Asia um, and I think it's the the readiness with which the internationalist project can be folded back into that kind of imperial narrative um, of Russia as a kind of civilizer and savior in East Asia, right, against more pernicious forms of imperialism, such as the British, that um, you see at work in something like that,
0: poppy. And one point you just mentioned is like the, like the Soviet influence, like the cultural and the political influence like took off, like, simultaneously let's say uh, due to historical facts um and maybe we, we can we can go on with, with that point as well that there are some operas like um, um the the cinema, like the cinematic opera that never never real which never has been realized due to political facts or also like in the last chapter the um, the bio interview which with an open end um mm-hmm. so this interweaving of um um of artistic uh of artistic work and historical like that have been influenced or uh, failed let's say a failed um internationalist uh, aesthetic work due to historical um changes um can you like c- can you say a little bit more about that like I don't I don't want like I, I say now I don't want to accept this um stark narrative of failure but um I mean this is kind of impressive uh, regarding China and early Soviet culture like how like the beginning from twenty, like 1927 like how these historical facts also changed of course the um, the works of treasure or oh, what has been for you the most striking and of historical fact and artistic practice in the analysis of all culture works about china
1: it's an it's an interesting question and actually this, the idea of failure um is something that i talk about quite a lot in the book because in a sense you know, it's hard it's hard to work on these materials without some sense that this is a a kind of a historical possibility perhaps in some senses a utopian historical possibility um, that was not ultimately realized right um you know it's not the case for example ultimately that that soviet russian culture overcame um the eurocentrism of uh a pre-revolutionary russian culture and reoriented itself in some radical way towards East Asia, which is partly the project that someone like Tretiakov or another figure I talk about, the journalist Alexei Ivin, are advocating for in this period. They're advocating for the idea that actually we need to completely overhaul the way Russia relates to the world, right? We need to um, get everyone learning Chinese. We need people to sort of understand that they are sort of a part of Asia and thus have to sort of understand the history of China as much as they understand the history of Rome. I mean, these these things never actually take place, right? Um, Nor is it, I think, the case that um, certain kind of racialized attitudes towards East Asia, which took place in Russia, took root in Russia, particularly in the 19th century, under the ideology of the Yellow Peril, right? Um, Nor is it the case that those those attitudes disappear. Um, So there is a sense in which there is a sort of utopian element to this project, which is um, so sort of testing its possibilities in the tw- in this early Soviet period, but does not lead to some sort of radical transformation of um, the relationship between Russia and China. Uh, and I, I think that uh, sort of has to be accepted in some ways and is actually quite a familiar story, really, of the early Soviet period and the relationship between uh, the 20s and the 30s, right? With this idea of the 20s as a kind of time of experimentation that then gives gives way to sort of a much more rigidified Sort of political and cultural control under Stalinism, and a sort of uh, sense of cultural orthodoxy, and much less leeway for experimentation, and and also essentially a kind of recentering of a kind of Russian Russo-centric primacy in a sort of um, reimagined sort of imperialist understanding of the Soviet project. Um, so all of that, I think, to some extent, is true, um, and. It's, it leads, I think, to certain ways in which these sort of international aesthetics experiments um, are either forestalled in the case of Tretikov's project on China, uh, his film project with Eisenstein, which was supposed to be a trilogy to be made in 1926, but never happened because of a sort of change in the political winds in China. Um, or it leads to some of this work not reaching the audiences that it could have done, um, such as the bio interview Deng Shihua, which Teichikov wrote with one of his students from Beijing, which is his longest and in many ways his most interesting and complex work on China, but has never been translated into Chinese, for example, and I think has never reached the audience that he would ideally have liked it to reach uh, within China. Um, Nonetheless, I think it's it's important to me to sort of revisit these experiments for precisely for seeing, um, you know, the possibilities uh, that, that were forestalled in this period uh, and the kind of generative ideas that this internationals project actually did, did sort of uh, enable, yeah. right? Um, a lot of these ideas are things that later on get taken up in some more contemporary post-colonial theory, right? In many ways, I think Tretyakov is aiming for uh, the overcoming of what uh, Johannes Fabian, the anthropologist, in his 1991 book, Time and the Other, calls the denial of coevalness, this idea that the West creates itself as a subject of history where the rest of the world is in some kind of eternally belated state, right? A lot of what Tretyakov is trying to do is overcoming that sense of China as existing in a completely different temporal reality to the Soviet Union. Um, but it's always coexisting with this kind of centripetal dynamic that recenters the Soviet Union as the, as the ultimate vanguard of history. and I think that's something that you know ultimately is not overcome, right? Um, and there's, there's there's no way really to to get around that fact. So the, the book does have a slight kind of a slightly tragic dynamic to it. It actually ends with the fact that thatkleyakov and several of the other figures that I talk about are were 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 purged, right? So uh Pilnyak was also purged, uh Marhold, who directed the um production of Raw China, uh was killed in the purges. Several of the advisors who went to China in the in the 20s, um like uh Vasili for example, uh also lost their lives in the Stalinist purges. Um so it's not I it's not a book where I try to be too kind of utopian about this project, but I also try in some ways to insist that there's something about the kind of utopian energy of these projects that, that was generative in a way that seems seems very distant from our contemporary perspective, where the possibility of a genuine kind of sort of internationalist project that would actually sort of radically reconfigure the way that different parts of the world relate to each other and create a certain kind of sense of global solidarity, that those possibilities feel very distant from our contemporary perspective. And that's still something I think that, um, that these early Soviet experiments um can can be very attractive.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, as you said, like the experimental, correct. Also, this dialectical work. I mean, there was the attempt, at least, to to create uh, a different vision. Or as you said at the the end of your introduction, you 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 say that like the imagination of like possibilities of transnational community, like like this this is something which is still interesting for us today as well. Um, I mean. In, in a radically unequal world um, so this is something which mm. yeah, which remains of this project even if it's not fulfilled, let's say but uh, concerning mm-hmm. the like the internationalist project um, um i was wondering as well as like because you cited for example the the shiny small isaac Babel um is there also uh, A sort of anti-internationalist aesthetics, because like these, uh, like depicting like the suffering, uh, like subject. Let's say, uh, um, yeah. For example, the Chinese Mill. This was something you cited, but were there also more um, works, uh, mediums, which uh, kind of played satirically with these uh, internationalist aesthetics?
1: Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, I think the Chinese, the Chinese Mill is is the only one. That is sort of explicitly um, to parodying what I would call international what I call international statistics um, so Barbell's play Bible Barbell wrote the script for this film which the film itself has been lost unfortunately it's from 1928 um, and it was written in the wake of the failure of the uh, of, of Soviet policy in China after the nationalist kind of um, coup against the communists and it's a, it's a film about kind of young Komsomol activist from a village um, who goes to Moscow uh, and is present at a kind of um, one of these sort of assemblies of um, what was called the Hands-Off China um, organization, Ruki Proch at Kitaya, um, which was basically a kind of solidarity organization set up to kind of hold meetings and promote this notion of of, solid, of anti-imperialist solidarity with China. Uh, and he goes there and he meets a, a Chinese communist who's on his way back home, and they have a conversation where the communist explains what's happening in China, and then the Komsomol member reads actually an illustrated magazine, which is probably the journal *Projector*, which is the kind of photo journal of Pravda, uh, and reads about what's happening in China. Several of Treyukov sketches were published in *Projector*, and he sees these images of kind of suffering Chinese rickshaw pullers, um who are pulling kind of fat overweight imperialists which is the kind of stereotypical image sort of propaganda image of of chinese semi-colonial suffering in sort of soviet media in this time um and he becomes deeply affected by this and he tries to mobilize his village um to march to china and uh, intervene in what's happening there um but the but the the film is a comedy right so it's all about how they the villagers are completely unprepared to do anything like this they um they take out kind of rusty old uh, weapons and they put sort of spurs on their horses. Um, and, and But they don't know how to find China on a map. They have no idea how to get there. It's got this kind of like, sort of Don Quixote quality to it, right? These sort of uh, tilting at windmills, um, trying to play this heroic role, but actually being radically unsuited for it. Uh, and then eventually um, they decide that instead of marching to China, they should just fix uh, the broken down mill. Uh, in their own village. Um, so it's, it becomes a kind of allegory, I think, in a way for this turn away from um, sort of global revolution towards socialist reconstruction, right, the building of socialism in the country. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a comic take, that very explicitly with all of these elements that I talk about in the book, this kind of use of, of, um, of modern media, of print journalism, and, and also film, it seems like, Segments of the film Shanghai Document were shown, were sort of edited into this film uh, when it was uh, when it was screened. Um, so it's using all these elements, but essentially then sort of saying that this this project is is a utopian fantasy, right? And we're not actually equipped to do it, or the sort of population as a whole can't actually um, engage on this kind of internationalist level and needs to stay with its more local concerns. Um, that is the only sort of openly satirical week on internationalist aesthetics that I found while working on the book. Um, although um, it, it shows up in all sorts of sort of weird little places. Um, the the novel um, The Twelve Stools by Ilson Petrov actually has an early moment early on where someone has a sort of comic exchange with a shopkeeper who says, um, Have you seen what's happening in. Um, it's either Shanghai or Guangzhou. Isn't it extraordinary what's happening? We really have to do something, right? So there are all these little ways in which the, the sort of, the presence of it as an urgent theme kind of is sprinkled through the, the Soviet culture of this period. Um, what happens more, I think, is this this sort of, you see this turn away from, or the internationalist theme kind of gets subordinated to um, to, to certain kind of central concerns of, of what becomes the kind of Stalinist culture of the 1930s. So I talk about this a little bit in the conclusion to the book, uh, the epilogue, where I deal with um, a couple of examples of of 30s uh, cultural production and what we might think of as internationalist aesthetics. Um, And one is the poet Emmy Xiao, or Xiao San, who's a very interesting figure, uh, a Chinese poet, close childhood friend of Mao Zedong, uh, who spent a lot of his career in the Soviet Union, um, after fleeing uh, the 1927 uprising um, where he he was in Shanghai during the coup. Um, he wrote several poems that were published particularly in the journal International Literature, um, which are kind of interesting example of kind of transnational collaboration between him and his translator Alexander Rom. Uh, Xiao knew Russia pretty well. He wrote his poems in Chinese. He would often kind of dictate them to Rom and then give him his working translation and Rom would then sort of tidy it up for the published translation. Um, so it's very much an example of this kind of collaborative approach that Tretiukov was always aiming for in some ways in his work. Um, but the poems that Star actually writes are in many ways kind of indistinguishable from other sort of, um, what I guess we could call Stalinist agitational verse, right? The sort of, the language and the, even the kind of sort of semi-Mayakovskian forms that he's using with things like construction. Um, are already deeply embedded in the codes of Soviet um, poetry. So it's, it's both an example of internationalist collaboration and an example of the sort of weight that the dominance of certain codified Soviet cultural forms now have in shaping um, even the, the writing of a Chinese poet. Um, and when other elements of that in the epilogue is the visit of the very famous Chinese actor Meilan Fang to Moscow in 1935, uh, which Tchaikov was a central figure in Um, and was very influential on figures like Beto Box, right? Brecht's whole idea of the estrangement effects in Chinese acting comes from seeing Meilan Fan in Moscow in 1935. But Trechikov's own take on Meilan Fan is very different from his writing about Chinese theatre in the 20s. Um, Instead of seeing Chinese theatre as part of the kind of remnants of a feudal culture that needs to be rejected for a kind of Agit, agit art based on the, the unfolding present. In the thirties, Tretiakov is praising Mei Lanfang as a sort of representative of an ancient culture that has its kind of deep cultural forms that can be preserved into the into the revolutionary present, right? Which is much more along the lines of how Soviet culture, Stalinist culture, tries to kind of see itself as the culmination of various different uh, cultural traditions of the world, right? But in a way that preserves what is kind of popular. Uh, and truly kind of of the people from these various different forms. Um, so there's this real way in which, you know, even the project of internationalist aesthetics gets repurposed uh, under the sort of gravitational pull of these of these Stalinist cultural codes in the 30s. Um, and that's, I think, it's more kind of, it's more sort of uh, prolonged fate uh, than the more satirical approach that Babel takes in, in 28. Yeah, yeah,
0: um... In the epilogue you just cited, you speak about uh, the importance of uh, the journal International Literature, which was founded after 1927, um, and the outstanding um, impact of, of this journal to, as a vehicle for to produce an internationalist community. Uh, which brings me back to my one of my main questions as well, um, which medium X Man your monograph functions best as a vehicle for Soviet internationalist perspective on China? Is it rather the uh, literature effect established by Tretiakov or the first Soviet ballet? Is it the is it the international literature journal, or is it um, cinema? The chapter we haven't talked about yet is. It's your chapter about cinema and yeah, maybe we could talk that further about cinema as a particular medium to generate a transnational community cinema that raises geographical and cultural distance and cinema to, to cite also Mikhail Pavlovich to... Uh, is an optimal medium for penetrating the East of Soviet culture, this sort of an open window. Um, so, um, yeah, which is uh, the perfect medium.
1: Mm-hmm. No, it's a great, um, and in a way, you know, that's sort of each chapter is kind of delving into what, what these different mediums can accomplish in terms of this larger project of internationalist aesthetics and what their own kind of limitations or, uh, I guess you could say, sort of biases are, right? What they tend to privilege, what they tend to foreground, um, what kind of understanding of, of connection they, they offer. Cinema is particularly interesting in this regard, I think, um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because the the indexical quality of the photographic and cinematic image um, is sort of is taken up by Tretyakov and others, as offering a particularly kind of um, sort of immediate uh, access to between a a spectator and the reality that is filmed, so between, say, a Soviet spectator and Chinese reality, right? Uh, Tretikov talks about it as, at last, cinema will allow us to come face-to-face with our Chinese brothers, Um, which is, you know, a simplification probably of how the cinematic medium actually functions, Um, but nonetheless, I think, Uh, quite a good indicator of how its kind of radical potential for reordering uh, global relationships is understood, right? Um, This kind of collapsing space whereby a Soviet spectator in a Moscow uh, cinema can suddenly see a Shanghai street and have some kind of of sensory and almost tangible sense of uh, of being present in that space. Um, So that's one aspect of the cinematic medium which gets heavily promoted as um, sort of as as sort of enabling international aesthetics to achieve its aims. Um, And that's why I actually, in the on Cinema, I talk a lot about documentary films. So two prominent documentaries that got made about China in the 20s. One is called The Great Flight, uh, and it's about an aviation expedition from Moscow to Beijing in 1925, which was the first aviation expedition ever to cross that geographical space and the first ever to cross the Gobi Desert. Um, so the, the expedition itself is an expression of the desire for connection, right? And actually the idea that aviation has allowed this distance to collapse and you can now travel it in a sort of matter of weeks rather than a matter of, or even a matter of days rather than a matter of months. Um, uh, and in that sense, it sort of follows on from things like the Chinese, the, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which was built in the late 19th century. Um, but the film also engages in this kind of collapsing of distance and this idea that, um, the Soviet camera can now sort of capture China and bring it before a Russian and Soviet audience. Uh, and Shanghai Document is doing something similar but focused on the city of Shanghai. Um, it's a very interesting, very complex film using kind of parallel montage to show it as this divided city. Um, and also as like, I kind of try to get into in that section, um, what I think is interesting about Shanghai Document is the way that it actually sort of foregrounds the ability of um, the film itself to understand the city in a way that its residents cannot, right? Because it can traverse all these different spaces, but also because it can juxtapose them uh, through montage. Um, so there there's an argument, not just about the indexical quality of the photographic image, but also the kind of sort of cognitive resources of montage itself as a cinematic technique that by juxtaposing the view on the Chinese and, and European sides of a fence in Shanghai, for example, um, you can show... Um, The kind of radical inequality on the sort of combined and uneven development, you could say, uh, of this semi-colonial city and show the way in which European leisure is essentially founded on Chinese labor, right? That's the kind of sort of Marxist argument the film itself is making, but it's one that the film is, the film as a medium is uniquely qualified to make because of its combination of photographic um, fixation and, and montage, um, so that's the first element I guess, is the idea that cinema as a medium is, has these sort of qualities that allow it to represent, to sort of perform the task of international aesthetics. The other is the question of distribution, which is the idea that because of the way that film is distributed, um, it has the ability to reach international audiences. Um, and the film chapter is the one where the kind of project of actually sharing Soviet culture with China and with Chinese spectators uh, is most pronounced. So the Soviet film industry was always very interested in this question of how they could get Soviet films into China um, and actually does compete with the predominance of American cinema, which was very you know heavily imported into China at in this time, as indeed it was into the Soviet Union. Um, and so a lot of these films were made explicitly with an eye to being seen by Chinese audiences. I talk about a, a, an animation film called China on Fire, which is filled with um, Chinese um, text, right? So most of its titles, many of its titles are in Russian, but then also translated into Chinese. So it clearly has an eye towards uh, being seen and to having a propagandistic effect in China as well. Um, There's also Tretukov's ultimately unmade trilogy of collaborations with Eisenstein, uh, which was also explicitly made with an eye to being distributed in China. Um, and so the notion was this is a kind of Soviet vision of China that then could be exported back to China itself, right? Um, that doesn't ultimately happen. It's one of the kind of failures of this of this sort of vision of this project. Um, but what does happen ultimately is in the early 1930s, um, Soviet cinema does become extremely influential in China, particularly among uh, kind of Chinese leftists and those who are thinking about what a kind of left chinese cinema would look like it's actually not eisenstein but pudovkin who becomes the most influential figure in china films like storm over asia for example uh, have a major impact um, with chinese spectators and also pudovkin's film theory is very influential in china and quite formative for the formations of chinese left wing cinema in the 30s so the the influence does eventually arrive although not quite in the sort of in the, in the way that um, the practitioners of internationalist aesthetics wanted it to, right? So there's always these interesting ways in which these connections are happening, but they're not quite linking up uh, in the way that the, the sort of ideal vision of this project uh, is often presented. Um, Pilniak's sort of failed collaboration with Qian Han and Jiang Tzu, where they're supposed to make a film together, but it ultimately doesn't get made because of lack of funds. Um, and also Pilniak describes it as this kind of hellish uh Tor- torment it, uh, of actually participating in the film is another example of this, right? Um, but the act does allow that, does put them in touch with someone at the Soviet consul who then allows Tianhan Han to watch Eisenstein's battleship Batyomkin, which then leads to the Tian Han kind of revising his own sense of what cinema should be. Um, so, you know, the, the links, the historical links, don't always work out the way the actors want them to. Um, but that's part of the messiness, I think, that makes these kinds of transnational collaborations so mm-hmm. interesting.
0: This is something like this point uh, kind of like the double audience, like that the, the film, films were supposed to be shown in, in to Chinese audience as well, is something kind of exclusive, let's say, um, regarding the, the medium uh, cinema, isn't it?
1: I mean, the other place it happens is is the play Raw China, which, as I said, is is translated into Chinese and is ultimately performed in China. Um, I mean, I think Trey Chico probably would have wanted his bio-interview, Deng Hua to be translated into Chinese. Um, that never happened, and interestingly, ha- has never happened. Um, possibly, I hope, with the sort of renewed interest in Trey Chico as a figure, uh, it might eventually take place. Um, but it's true that, you know, when there is a kind of... Although there is a large translation of Russian literature into Chinese taking place at this time, including soviet literature um what ultimately it tends to get translated is is socialist realism from the soviet canon um so figures like uh fadiev uh astrovsky's how the steel was tempered is enormously influential in china
0: yeah and um, socialist realism to just set it um, would be my next question like how did socialist realism impede or also favor the emerging internationalist aesthetics or? Um, for example like in Tretjakov's, um anti like let's say anti novel and inspired interview like this curl um between verse uh, literature literature effect versus socialist realism or um like let's let's take these two movements of like these, the doctrine of socialist realism on the one hand and on the other hand it's more uh, let's say avant um experiments um what role does like socialist realism play or also in your conclusion, you're talking about like um, the, the famous actor and like, like it's the last chance like of it experimenting mm-hmm. something, which is more avant gardeistic before like the Stalinist codes in the, in the thirties. Um...
1: Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, I think the, it, the place where this relationship really comes to the fore is in the chapter on, uh, Tretjikov's bio-interview, Deng Shuhua. Um, this is a text that has a very interesting history, and its history is kind of central to the text itself. So it's um, it's a biography of one of Tretjikov's students from Beijing, a guy called Gao Shuhua, um, also known as Gao Xinya, um, who... Was uh, an aspiring writer himself. He published fiction in in China and in Chinese, and also several translations of Russian literature. Um, before he in after studying with Tretiakov in Beijing, he comes to Moscow to study at the Communist University for the, the Workers of China. Um, and while he's in Moscow, he collaborates with Tretiakov uh, on this thing that called a bio interview, which is basically for six months they would meet regularly. Um, and Tritikov would sort of interview Gao his life uh, and then make extensive notes and then from that interview process, Tretikov then writes um, a, a long, sort of 330 page narrative account of Gao's life, which is told from the first person, so it's told as if and in the present tense, as if Gao himself is kind of reciting this account of his own life right? um, and this is, so it's it's an intriguing text to me because of its sort of its process of production and the way that that process of production remains sort of a part of the text itself. Uh, so it has an introduction where Tatyakov explains how the book was put together. Um, he explains it in ways that makes clear that in some ways he was the kind of senior figure, right? Um, he was the teacher. Gao was the student. Uh, he describes himself as. Uh, sort of his priest, his psychoanalyst, um, his his, his um, interrogator, essentially, right? All these different ways of understanding the role. He describes himself as a miner who sort of borrowed into Gao and sort of extracted information. The name, by the way, was changed to Tao Dung uh, to protect Gao from repercussions when he went back to China. Um, so there's all these sort of ways in which it's set up as, you know, this imbalanced relationship. Uh, but then at the end of the book it kind of gets flipped because after gao goes back to China he goes back after the Shanghai coup in, in 2027 20, um, Teyakov meets with another student um, who tells him well actually a lot of what gao told you might not entirely be true and there's all the elements he's left out he didn't mention this his fiance that he had uh, presented himself as kind of incapable of love and love and affection but he also presented himself in many ways as a kind of model revolutionary in a way that this later student sort of questions and doubts. Um, And so this was really interesting to me because this is very unlike your kind of classic socialist-realist narrative, right? So a socialist-realist narrative, you know, a sort of typical understanding, right? Sort of use this Dhanav phrase, it represents reality in its revolutionary development. Um, There's a tendency to sort of project um, a sort of positive, Um, future resolution of of historical contradictions uh, in a a socialist realist text, right? In a way that makes its kind of pedagogical message uh, fairly clear. Um, What's interesting about Deng Shihua is it seems in certain ways that it's following that logic. It's following a logic that's quite familiar from socialist realism, where the life of an individual uh, and their sort of journey through history, um, a kind of Bildungsroman, roman becomes a certain sort of allegory for the movement of history itself, right? This is the way Katerina Clark understands socialist realism. It's the protagonist movement from spontaneity to consciousness is an allegory for the movement of history itself in in a similar sort of direction. um, So this dialectical struggle is ultimately sort of resolved in favor of of greater consciousness and of revolutionary development. Um, Tretikov's text is interesting in that it sort of offers that reading of Gao's sort of progression from growing up in a kind of feudal um, scholar-gentry family, uh, which his father was a nationalist. Uh, The son grows up originally a kind of nationalist, but then after he goes to Beijing University, he's exposed first to anarchism and then through Tetyukov and others in the Russian department to Marxism. So he's moving towards the kind of correct form of revolutionary consciousness, right? He then comes to Moscow, which is obviously then, again, kind of taking the journey in the right direction, where he studies at a a Moscow institution founded by the commenter and this communist university for the workers of China. Um, He continues collaborating with Treyjikov. Everything seems to be pointing us in the direction of the sort of revolutionary education of a young Chinese socialist. But that whole narrative kind of breaks down at the end with this unresolved ending and this intervention by this other student. So what was interesting to me was not just the breakdown, but also the way in which... The fact that the text constantly makes you aware of its own processes of production um, introduces a dynamic that I think is very different, actually, to the way socialist realism tends to work. Um, to put it simply, I think what tretukov is trying to achieve is a kind of a kind of active reader rather than a passive reader, right? Um, and it's one of the things that he actually the reason he rejects fiction is he thinks fiction is a kind of illusionism that lures the reader into a sort of almost hypnotic state, right, where they believe in the reality of this fictional mimetic world, which is not in fact real, right? And for Treychukov, this is part of, kind of a similar sort of fetish, fetishization of aesthetic experience that it feeds into the exoticism, exoticization of China. Um, with his documentary work, he's constantly trying to disrupt any... Any, any moment where the reader could fall into that kind of aesthetic illusionism, right? Um, so Gao's story, which is told in the sort of present tense first person, is already compromised by the introduction that tells you it came out of this much more complicated, sort of messy um, reality of collaboration and interview interaction. Um, which at times resorted to Gao having to draw things on pieces of paper because he didn't know the Russian words for them, right? His Russian is not perfect. Tlechikov's Chinese is pretty bad. Um, So the whole thing is messy, and yet the narrative is smooth, right? And in a way, Tchaikov doesn't want to forget the fact that there's a sort of contradiction between those two elements. Um, He constantly interrupts footnotes, saying, well, actually, this might not be true, and actually other sources would dispute this. There's a moment when he himself takes over as narrator, which kind of reveals the device of the whole thing being completely kind of constructed in the first place. Um, So all of these elements, I think, are trying to create a kind of critical awareness in the reader that on the one hand, this is founded in factual documentary materials, right? But on on the other hand, the text is is a construct um, and that those materials could have been put together in different ways, right? That there's a kind of um, contingency to the text they are reading. Which is not a sort of the only historically necessary possibility, and all of those elements I think are absent from a, a, tr- a classical socialist realist text, right? Uh, which is not really interested in creating that sense of of contingency, of constructedness, of, of the possibility that you know this is just one montage of elements that could have been put together differently. Uh, there's a much more kind of sort of adherence, sort of strong adherence to the idea of this is the necessary. Uh, narrative in, in in socialist realism. And that, I think, is where I would place the difference between Tretikov's ultimately more kind of avant-garde um, approach uh, that's always interested in kind of disrupting the reader's assumptions and unsettling their ability to settle into easy, easy narrative solutions, as opposed to socialist realism, which is invested in finding a kind of clear pedagogical message, right? And in so doing wants to kind of smooth away uh, these kind of questions of um, the process of representation and mediation itself, right? Um, it doesn't want those to be part of the package because it really wants the sort of accessibility that allows those pedagogical messages to come through. Uh, so it's actually the socialist realist canon, not this kind of avant gardeist alternative that ends up having a really strong um, cultural influence in China and on the formation of, of a Chinese socialist realism.
0: Yeah, thank you for the specification and also how. The socialist realism influenced the uh, reception of China and Soviet culture. One one last medium we did we did not talk yet about it was um the poems of um, like to collect the chapter about the sensory perception as well to to um, yeah the sensory perception um, with the word China poem for example and um we so we just talked about realism but um there's also let's say kind of Futurist influence uh, regarding these onomatopoetic, uh poems of Chadyakov, uh where he describes the nights of Beijing, and um, this is another medium, let's say, <laughs> to, to have them all <laughs> in this interview, um, just a complete, like completely opposed, like uh, like like another medium of um, like bringing bringing Chinese uh, life uh, close to to a Soviet audience, uh, which is much more. A, yeah, century
1: more physically. Yeah, absolutely. No, that was and so Tretiakov actually began his literary career as a poet, uh, and as a futurist poet, um, very strongly influenced by Mayakovsky, but also the um, the, the experiments in transrational Zaum language by people like Khlebnikov uh, and Kurchonich. Um And before he wrote the play Raw China, he wrote this very interesting poem called Raw China. Um, while he was in Beijing, um, which is, it's an agitational poem. It's about the sort of need for uh, anti-imperial revolution in China, but it's centered around um, a series of portraits of different um, street traders on the Beijing streets. And the sort of phonetic structure of the poem um, does these really ingenious kind of experiments in trying to capture um, the distinctive trade sounds of Beijing street traders used. So um, because of the geography of Beijing streets, where you have these sort of courtyard homes uh, that don't have windows facing the streets, right? Um, so they're kind of hard to, so there's not much visual access to the streets. Um, street traders develop forms of sonic access. So to, to allow people to know they were there, um, they would use certain calls, or they would use certain kind of instruments. Um, there's a very interesting place called the Beijing Sound Museum, actually, in Beijing that's kind of reconstructed some of these instruments and the sounds they made. Um, and so this is a very kind of idiosyncratic sound scene that um, existed in Beijing in the early 20th century when Treychikov was there. And in the poem, he tries to sort of find ways to use the resources of Russian to sort of capture these sounds. Um, so he has a poem about the, the water carrier who sort of wheels a water cart up and down the street. And it makes this kind of creaking sound that's very sort of loud and distinctive. And he tries to catch that by using um, variations of the Russian word, which means to sort of, um, to screech, basically. So this sort of runs throughout the poem. Um, and, or there's one which is based on um, the fruit seller who used a particular kind of drum, this, these kind of hand drums, which you rotate and they have little balls on strings that go, um, and the, the rhythm of the poem is trying to reproduce the rhythm of that what he calls a kalatushka, um, this kind of tuk 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 sound. But I, it's an example of the sort of the resourcefulness, really, of Tretukov trying to use all these different media, which each have a different, each sort of privilege, a different a sort of aesthetic in the sense of sensory aspects, right? So that element of poetry, which is deeply rooted in the phonetic, right? And the the, the power and of st- phonetic sound, which is something that the futurists in particular were really, really interested in, right? Um, before Tretiakov, there are people like Klevnikov and Kurchonik who think of, of Zaum, of this kind of idea of transnational language, as potentially a transnational language, right? Um, that there's something that's sort of inherent in certain sounds or certain syllables that could communicate outside of a particular language and its kind of system of semantic meaning. Um, so this is a larger kind of way in which the early avant-garde is linked to this internationalist project, right? What if we can think of a kind of universal poetic language? And Politicov is doing a certain variation of that, right? He's trying to see if he can somehow use the phonetic structure of the Russian language to record these Chinese sounds in the street, which themselves are not linguistic, but they are semantic, right? They carry meanings um, and sort of transfer them to a Soviet audience and weave them into this kind of um, sort of revolutionary agitational poem. Um, So in the case of that, it's really the sort of, that's the aspects of this particular medium which can be best mobilized for an internationalist aesthetics right uh, with cinema it's the foot pho- is photograph um with with theater which this tension between between presence and absence um with the bio interview it's really this question of um you know the the origins of a text in a sort of pretextual um sort of living encounter between two individuals right and the ways in which Texts can or cannot, pres- can either preserve or smooth away the traces of their their own production processes. Um, and there's something similar to that happening with, um, with reportage as well, right? So each medium offers something different, uh, but each, I think, is being sort of actively used for what elements of it can best sort of serve this task of forming internationalist connections through aesthetic experience. Yeah, so this is
0: something that might... My- Account also against the failure <laughs> narrative, I'd say. Um, but uh, maybe returning to to the opening citation of of your monograph, um, where Tchekov describes like Soviet knowledge of China as a crippled arm, which must first be broken mm. and then reset correctly. How can art contribute to a new political vision, and in the case of China and all Soviet culture, to a transnational community?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's this is an important question since. Um no, I am dealing with a kind of artistic production that explicitly understands itself as political, right? Um, So art and politics in this instance, I mean, I would argue to some sense in all instances, but this instance are kind of explicitly intertwined. Um, The Trechikov and the left avant-garde in particular, I mean, all art is politicized in the Soviet Union from the very start, but Trechikov and the avant-garde in particular understand their work as kind of sort of politicizing the aesthetic innovations of of futurism and of avant-garde art, right? Um, so Tretiakov is, is invested in particular in kind of finding political functions for the Shklovskian idea of estrangement, right? The idea that art's function is to kind of estrange us from our sort of automatized perceptions of the world, right? And allow us to see the world differently. For someone like Tretiakov, that has political function because it means if you, you can see the world differently it means you could potentially see your kind of political and social position in the world differently um, i i mean so i draw partly on the kind of similarities between what tretikov is trying to do and and the idea in someone like walter benjamin of the politicization of aesthetics right um, which i think actually is benjamin himself is very much drawing on the experience of the soviet avant-garde in that regard um, i also use the ideas of, of jacques Rancière in um, his idea of the distribution of the sensible, the partage du sensible, uh, where for, for Ranciere, essentially, um, you know, aesthetics is, is, a, is, a, is an organization of sensory experience in a way that allows the world to appear uh, or not appear in some ways. Right. And the ways in which the world can or cannot be made available to sense experience is foundational for the forms of political consciousness and political action that can take place. Um, and that's very much, I think, what international aesthetics is about. It's about this sort of trying to reorder the way that the world, in this case, China, um, is sort of appears and is available to the sensory experience of of Soviet subjects, with the idea that then that can then lead to a different kind of um, sort of political relationship taking place. Right. Um, so this, this is this is where I think you know it's how I understand the idea of aesthetics is really. Um, in line with this kind of Rancierian idea that it's the ways in which art and media yeah. make a certain understanding of the world available to the senses, right? Uh, and not just to direct cognition, mm-hmm. but also playing on, on sensory experience and the importance of sensory experience in this process. Um, so that's why, you know, the importance of sound in the poem or sight um, or the sort of feelings produced by watching ballet or watching violence on stage, all of these things, are part of what is being put in the service of trying to form a new kind of uh, political relationship and political connection. Um, So emotions and sensory experience are kind of indivisible from the formation of this this idealized new political consciousness.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, the importance of sensory experience for redistribution of the sensible via a series of experimental forms and literature poetry theater, cinema, to achieve, let's say, a new seeing of China,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a new political Sino-Soviet connection, is definitely something that stands out in your analysis. Um, and for for the aspect of politicized aesthetics, uh, the concept of Franciere that you've drawn on, in your book also reminded me of the Russian literary scholar Voloshinov, um, who states in, in his work Marxism in philosophy of language, that the poetic work is a powerful condenser of unspoken social evaluations. And I think this is also something that applies to the Soviet media, which you analyzed in your book, like from fetishized exo- exoticism to engagement with a concrete social reality, let's say more authenticity. Um Regarding the letter, do you have anything to add on the reception or, let's say, the general development of the image of China in Soviet culture from the 18th century to the 1920s and maybe also towards the 50s?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this obviously is obviously a thing that also has a contemporary relevance. Right? Yeah, so today's uh, China-Russia alliance and its immense geostrategic and sort of global importance, particularly in the context of the of the Ukraine war and what seems like a kind of more explicit realignment um, of uh, of global forces. Um, I, think, I mean, I think I would say that the Russia-China relationship over the long span of history from you know, sort of early contact in the 17th century uh, to today um is an interesting one in that i think it has if you were going to talk about a consistent dynamic that runs through very different phases of this relationship um i would say one is one is a kind of a constant oscillation or co-presence of a sense of similarity and a sense of difference right um so obviously russia and china come from deeply uh, different, different cultural origins, right? Um, Russia, Russia with its roots in uh, in sort of Byzantine Christianity and and East Slavic culture, um, where China, you know, it did the sort of fundamental elements of, of Confucianism as a sort of foundational element in Chinese culture, uh, with strong influence of, of Buddhism also from India, right? These sort of larger sort of cultural roots are strikingly different. Um, On the other hand, the notion of a kind of China-Russia similarity, I think itself also has deep roots, right? Um, The idea that these are um, two large land-based Eurasian empires um, that remained empires uh, in a kind of, in a sense that was both predominantly focused on a kind of central figure of, of an emperor um, and remained kind of um, overwhelmingly rural agrarian empires that industrialized fairly late. Um, this this notion persists, you know, into the early 20th century, um, and you'll find it already in um, 19th century accounts of the relationship between Russia and China, right? That often present Russia and China as um, preservers of an earlier kind of. Um, model of t- aut- autocratic traditionalism as against um, these more modernizing republican ideas that are coming out of um, of the West. And that's the, a way, for example, the, um, sort of Russian statesmen tend to write about China in the later 19th century, uh, even around things like the Box Rebellion, for example. Um, there's also the fact that you know someone like Pilyak is is picking up on this idea of Russia's Eurasian identity, which kind of gets, gains more and more traction in the late 19th, early 20th century, where sort of a rejection of the notion that Russia is a kind of failed European country uh, leads towards the alternative that Russia is never meant to be a European country, right? That the sort of Petrine reforms were a mistake. And Russia is really a Eurasian country deeply defined by its invasion by uh, the Mongol Empire, which w- which also invaded China. And that in some sense, its historical destiny and its historical sort of genetics really lie uh, on the Eurasian continent more broadly. Um, And I think that sort of sense of similarity and difference, um, which Chinese intellectuals were also aware of, uh, so there was a strong interest in the Petrine reforms, for example, among uh, Chinese reformers like Kang Youwei and Yang Qichao in the late 19th century, who were looking at ways of, of modernizing China, like can you can you sort of modernize technologically without having to take on all the trappings of Western culture, for example, right? Uh, for us, Chinese thinkers of that time, Russia offers again a kind of model for this sort of belated modernization of what we might call a semi-peripheral empire, right? Um, a lot of that continues into the, into the sort of socialist period. This notion that China and Russia are now united. Uh, by a common experience of uh, of revolution and of socialism, uh, then gets disrupted by the Sino-Soviet split and the idea that there is a Chinese model of socialism, Mao's socialism with Chinese characteristics, right, um, that uh, is, is fundamentally different from the Soviet model, which is increasingly seen as a kind of defunct and defective uh, and still trapped within the sort of pathways of European imperialism. Um, and even today, when sort of... Russia-China comparisons get made um, you know there are obvious similarities the kind of post-socialist reintegration into a capitalist world economy while retaining uh, a sort of fairly sort of undemocratic authoritarian system of government right a certain kind of state capitalism that you could say both Russia and China share Um, at the same time um, as there's a very great great book on this um, recently came out called On the Edge which is about the Russia-China border by Caroline Humphrey and Frank B.A. They talk about how, perspective of the border, you can see how radically different the Russian and Chinese sort of post-socialist policies actually are, right? Um, Russia really run on a kind of extractive economy um, that that largely benefits a kind of uh, small centralized elite and radically centralizes Moscow as as a center of accumulation of wealth. Um, whereas China, although it is also on, is, is very much under, remains under one-party rule, actually gives much takes much more seriously development of its regions, the expansion of infrastructure and so forth, and has a kind of manufacturing economy base that leads to a very different position within the world economy. Um, those those senses of sameness with difference, I think, um, do continue into the present. And this is a long-winded way of saying that <laughs> um, my my future work I hope to focus on two subsequent historical periods the 1950s and the last 20 or so years and look at ways in which um, these these changing understandings of the russia china relationship have been refracted into cultural production in those periods and how this sort of sense of the relationship as uh, as one of between places that are both similar and in other ways kind of uh, very much radically different um, persists and how that continues to complicate these aspirations towards cultural collaboration that still exist in both those time periods. So that's a little sort of gesture towards what I'm, what I'm working on at the moment and hope to be, hope to be pursuing in the future.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you already answered what have been my last question to you. Um, so we'll stay tuned for the continuation of your research. Um, thank you so much, uh, Professor Taiman.
1: Thank you Chris no it's it's, it's been pleasure.